All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tent of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now, I think this is our third uh, foray into this 118th number of Psalms. I know uh, just before vacation, we covered verses 8 and 9. And so this morning, as we look at the text before us, verses 10 through 18, the first thing that I want to call attention to before we actually uh, look at our text is the emphasis in the first four verses is what sets the tone for the entire psalm. And what sets the tone for the uh, entire psalm and what's emphasized throughout these four verses, in fact, it's repeated four times, and that is the, st- the stanza or the, the expression of God's steadfast love. That's what the whole psalm is grounded on, the fact of God's steadfast love. And you notice that every time it's mentioned in those, those first four verses, we are reminded that God's steadfast love endures forever. Now, we've called attention on, uh, uh, on a number of occasions to the fact that the phrase, the Hebrew phrase, steadfast love, that's, or that's translated as steadfast love, what it refers to, it's God's covenant love and covenant faithfulness. God's commitment, his covenant commitment, his covenant love to those that he has saved. So therefore, what is captured in that repetition of God's steadfast love endures forever is a reminder that God, those upon whom he has set his grace, he is committed to them to the very end. So all of the other experiences and everything else that's alluded to throughout the psalm is anchored in the phrase of or the fact of God's steadfast love. Now, in verses 8 and 9, which we looked at before, the writer is emphasizing or is talking about taking refuge in the Lord, taking refuge in the Lord, and how taking refuge in the Lord is better than trusting in men, even if it's men in the highest offices. And basically, he is saying, in effect, that God's steadfast love or God's covenant faithfulness is really the object of saving faith and the trust of his people. Everything that we believe in concerning the salvation of our souls rests in what is captured in the phrase of God's steadfast love. Now, I made the the distinction when we say the, the object of our faith, and I say this because For whatever reason, a number of people have a misunderstanding of what faith is. And sometimes we speak of faith as if it's a power 
we sometimes speak of faith as if it is a work of man that God must reward. And rather than understanding that faith is itself the receiving, and by the way, faith according to Paul in Romans or in Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, he says, "By grace are you saved, and that not uh, and that not of yourself, but is of God." He says, "By grace are you saved through faith." And he says, "And that itself, that that faith is of God. Faith does not emanate with us. It does not begin with us." Faith is God giving us the ability to trust his promises. We've illustrated it this way in the past of, of um, the old school detergent. And you remember how in the old school detergent it came in the tall boxes and, and everybody had those Tupperware cups in their washroom to measure out the, the detergent and, and then all of a sudden, lo and behold, you go to the store and you get a box of detergent and you open it up and there's a scoop in it. So you say, oh, well, I don't need, I don't need the, the, the cups anymore. And you figure maybe that's a, that's a giveaway and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's going to expire. So how many of us ended up at, at some point early on when they made that transition, we had a whole collection of those scoops because it didn't dawn on us that every box of detergent comes with the scoop. And then lo and behold, probably after about five years or so, it caught on. That this, if the scoop is not in the box, there's something wrong. That's, a, that's an oversight on their part. Here's what I'm saying. God's grace is that detergent. And faith is that scoop. And for everyone to whom God has given saving grace, he has given the scoop of faith by which we are able to, co to comprehend and grasp the grace. Wherever there is saving faith, it is attached to the object of God's grace. And wherever there is grace, wherever there is saving grace on the part of God, Wherever he dispenses that grace, he dispenses it with the scoop of faith in order to receive it. The point that the writer is making in these verses, verses 8 and 9, is that the object of saving faith is the trustworthiness of God that is wrapped up in his covenant name, his steadfast love. God's steadfast love endures forever. And so what the writer is doing is saying, in essence, that because of God's steadfast love, he is now integrating that truth into all of his horizontal experiences. So he knows that because God's steadfast love is the object in which he trusts, it is what strengthens him and it is what, what encourages him as he goes through all of his various horizontal experiences. His ultimate security is the fact of God, that, that God, the God who is with him, is a God who loves him with an everlasting love. So the fact of God being with him and the fact of God being for him is what strengthens him as he goes through all of his endeavors. Now what I'd like to do this morning 
from the text that is before us is look at four aspects of, God, of trusting God's steadfast love. Four aspects of trusting God's steadfast love. And here's the first one. Trusting, God's, trusting God, I should say, does not mean that external enemies and internal turmoils will automatically go away. Trusting God, trusting God's steadfast love, trusting all of God's promises, trusting his salvation, and even growing in that trust does not mean that external enemies and internal trials and turmoils will automatically go away. Notice in verses 10 and 11, he mentions, the writer mentions being surrounded, surrounded by enemies. Now hold in mind that the point of reference is possibly either immediate military challenges or he's using his previous military challenges as a metaphor to explain his challenges of life in general. But in any event, in verses 10 through 11, he mentions the very presence of enemies. Now, that's startling for someone. He says, I'm surrounded. In fact, he goes on to describe, not only does he say he's surrounded, but notice the very poetic way in which he expresses the effect of being surrounded. He says in verse 12, they surround me like bees. They surround me like bees. We just talked about bees this morning in our Sunday school class. But he says, they surround me like bees. And he says, and, and they went out like a fire among thorns. And, and the idea, of course, is like dry thorns. And, and so all it takes, they're, they're having wildfires in California right now. And oftentimes people will ask, well, why, why are there's always seasons of wildfires? I said, well, for one thing, it seldom rains. And therefore, all of the greenage becomes dry. And all it takes is a spark. And when, it's, when it sparks, everything just lights up. And so what the writer is saying, in effect, is I'm surrounded by my enemies. They surround me like vicious bees. And all it takes is, is a spark. And it's like flames to a thorn. Something that's dry, that just automatically consumes with fire. The issue here, he says, that I'm surrounded. Yes, I trust in the Lord. And, and, I can, and, and here's the challenge of faith. I can see them surrounding me. I can't see the Lord. That's the challenge. And so here's what we need to understand. Trusting God does not mean that the enemy automatically goes away. As I pointed out earlier, and we've mentioned it before in looking at this, this particular passage, that for the most part, first and foremost, what he is referencing is a physical and a military threat. He's looking at the presence of, of, of an army that's surrounding the city in essence. But the essence of what is conveyed here can be extended to also include not just physical threats, but also internal and emotional and psychological threats. Whatever brings discomfort to a human soul. Just because we trust in the Lord doesn't mean they go away. Some people think that. In fact, the, the bottom line is that trusting in God does not mean the moment you trust, 
all of your blues will be chased away and everything becomes bluebirds and butterflies. No, trusting in the Lord doesn't mean the storm clouds don't rise. Trusting in the Lord does not mean that, and, and sometimes people use it this way that, oh, if you're going through this, you're just, don't, you're, not just, you're just not trusting enough. No, trusting in the Lord does not mean that the outer demons or enemies or whatever you want to call them will no longer be following you and they won't be a problem. And it doesn't mean you won't have dark seasons of the soul doesn't mean that depressions won't come just because you trust in the Lord. Life's challenges are life's challenges, and God has given us his promise of steadfast love to trust him in spite of the more tangible, visible enemies that may indeed surround us, in spite of those things that disturb us, even in our inner beings. Trusting in the Lord doesn't mean they go away. I think that's something that many Christians need to learn because, unfortunately, those who are not anchored in that truth will lose their way when enemies start buzzing around like, like bees and when they lose a sense of internal, etern internal peace, they will somehow think they've been forsaken or abandoned by God. Brothers and sisters, it's hard, but we do try to sympathize with those who go through difficulties in life and they want to ask the question, well, why? Why? Why me? And especially when we think we've done all that we are supposed to do, why me? I believe the Lord. I trust him. Why am I afflicted with this? So understand that trusting in the Lord does not mean that the enemy will leave the gates. And it doesn't mean that all of a sudden you have a sunny disposition. The writer says, I did trust in the Lord. He says that, that the, the, the steadfast, God's, God's love is, is, or his steadfast love endures forever. And he says, and I will trust in the Lord. I will trust him. He has become my salvation. And even him being my salvation doesn't mean the enemy is left. And that's what we need to be reminded of. Just because we hurt and just because we are surrounded by this or the other doesn't mean that we're not trusting enough. Here's the second thing. Trusting in the Lord means being entrusted with the name of the Lord. It means being entrusted with the name of the Lord. Notice in verses 10 through 12, he repeats this, this, this refrain. In fact, almost as, a, as, as the, 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 the flip side of being surrounded, he says in verse 10, all nations surrounded me, but, here's, here's the clause, in the name of the Lord, I have cut them off. And then he repeats it in verse, in verse 11, they surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Verse 12, they surrounded me like bees and they were, they were out like a, they went out like a fire among thorns, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Now this is an important phrase for us to delineate. And one reason, 
uh, well, for a number of reasons, but, but here's the first thing that we do. We, we must begin with understanding the initial context in which he uses that phrase in the name of the Lord. Understand that, again, the point of reference is military engagement. And this isn't just military engagement in general. It is military engagement that is being undertaken by the theocratic nation of God. God was their God, which means that when they fought, they were actually fighting. If it was the will of God, if the prophet said, go fight, then they were truly fighting a holy war. In which case, the name of the Lord was a military phrase indicating that we are fighting under his banner. He is the one who has commissioned the army or the attack. And so therefore, he is referring to when he says in the name of the Lord, he wasn't fighting a private battle. But he is fighting against the enemies of God because the enemy of the people of God is an enemy of God. Now, one place in which we see this expressed for us quite clearly is in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 15. And I think it's often been taken out of context, but here's the statement. The Lord is speaking to one of, his, one of the kings of his theocracy, and he says this. He said, hearken ye all Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou king Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord unto you, be not afraid or dismayed, by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but the Lord's. Whenever God's covenant people in theocratic national Israel went to war in a, in a war that was approved by God, then in effect it was God's battle. Now, we, we, we make that distinction, right? We're, and and now, so hold in mind, now, that raises the question. How does the battle is not mine but the Lord's translate into contemporary terms? How does this phrase of fighting God's battle or using God's name in battle, how does that transfer from one who has been given the sword to those who have not been given the sword? In other words, I think a failure to delineate what the, what the writer means here is, a, is, 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 is leaning in a direction where we weaponize God's name in a way that does not translate for us who are in Christ. In fact, some have even taken this to say that, that in the name of Jesus, I've, I've heard people claim raises on their jobs in the name of Jesus. I've heard people try to get rid of sickness in the name of Jesus. I've heard people rebuking this and rebuking that in the name of Jesus because they think that just as the enemy was able to cut off his, his enemies because he was fighting in the name of Jesus or in the name of the Lord, that we have the same cachet and the same responsibility and the same ability to lay dead that which afflicts us in the name of Jesus. And there is a correlation. There is a, there is a connection, but sometimes it's not the one that we think. 
So what is meant here initially? Well, initially what's meant is that he cut them off in the name of the Lord. It's in the same sense that when David went out against Goliath, he was not fighting as a private citizen. But he says in the name of the God of Israel, you know, I I do this and and I, I, I challenge you. So what does it mean for us on this end of redemptive history to have access to and use of the name of the Lord. Is it the same way that we, as it, is it a banner for us where it has become an offensive weapon? The name of the Lord? Will that make all of our difficulties go away? Will it guarantee us victory? Well, hold in mind, and I think this is a big one. Here's what we have to begin. We have to begin by understanding that every battle that we find ourselves in is not the Lord's. Sometimes it's just the mess that we've made of a situation. And it's not the Lord. So I don't care how many times you use the name of Jesus. If you keep coming to work late. Right? You keep doing subpar work. You can claim the name of Jesus all you want. You're not going to get that raise. You see, we can claim the name of Jesus over our homes. And we are using it as nothing more than a superstitious talisman. Like a lucky charm. But is that what it really means? No. Understand what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual. Paul also tells us in Ephesians that we are not fighting against flesh and blood. So brothers and sisters, one reason, one way that we know the name of the Lord as being the ability to cut off the enemy, one way we know, one thing we know that it doesn't mean it doesn't give us the right to take up arms against those that we perceive to be our enemies. No, we have not been given the sword. It does not give us the right to go against the will of God. Because we bear the name of the Lord, it doesn't give us a right to be disruptive and to be disobedient. What does it mean? If our enemies, and hold in mind, brothers and sisters, especially in this portion of God's vineyard, our enemies are not armies and they are not nations. Our enemies are those that are of a spiritual sort. And so God has given us access to his name. We are told in the ironic benediction that in that benediction, he says, Aaron is to put my name on my people. 
God has given us access to his name even in prayer. Jesus, who is the revelation of God in the flesh, says whatever you ask in my name will be given to you. So here's what we know. If, 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 if trusting in the Lord does not mean we will, that all of our enemies will dissipate, then, then what, how do we deal with those things that surround us when we have access to the name of the Lord. And I think it means at least a few things. One, the name of the Lord for the people of God is a reminder to them, even in the midst of their struggles, that you belong to the Lord. In other words, he puts his name on us as a label. And that means it is we are, we are, we are sealed as it were. And that sealing is our security. So the name of the Lord has been given to us that even as the writer of, 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 of Proverbs says that the name of the Lord is a high tower. It's a form of protection for those who belong to him. And sometimes we don't act like we belong to the Lord. And sometimes we don't feel like we belong to the Lord. But the Lord has put his name on us. And so it is a reminder to us and in the midst of our struggles, we will not be overthrown because the Lord has invested his name in us. And there is nothing that will destroy what God has put his name on. But it's another, there's another way in which we need to hear this, especially in light of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, that the weapons of our warfare are good for bringing down arguments, especially as we deal, whether, oh, I was going to say, especially as we deal with our internal struggles. But I'm going to say, even as we deal with our external struggles in the right way. You see, brothers and sisters, people may afflict you and sin against you. But here's where we need to use the name of the Lord to subdue Adam in us so that we do not respond in the flesh to the situations that we are in horizontally. It is the name of the Lord that will cut them off in a sense, not that they will go away, but their voices just ring hollow. You see, when the world tells you what you're not, the name of the Lord reminds you of what you are. And even as we deal with internal struggles, it is the name of the Lord that is greater than all of your sin that remains. So we are to be reminded that where the name of the Lord is, there is security. Because he has placed on us, that's why Paul in 2 Corinthians also says that he has taken these earthly, these heavenly treasures and he's put them in earthen vessels. Uh, years ago, I've shared this before, but years ago I was doing a conference in Nigeria, a pastor's conference in Nigeria, and each day to start the day off, they would have one of the local native ministers to bring a devotional message. And I never will forget, this one Nigerian minister got up and he was preaching from that passage in 2 Corinthians 4. And he read it this way, and, and I ended up getting the African translation of the scriptures on that. He says that he has placed these heavenly treasures in crackpots. Crackpots. 
and reminded all of the preachers that all we are at best is but crackpots. I said, well, you know, folk have been telling me that for a long time, but yes, I get it. Crackpots. But notice the rationale that Paul gives. He says, I put these, God has done the exact opposite. He tells us not to put our treasures in things that can perish. But what he's done is he's put his treasure in that which is cracked for this reason. So that the excellency would be of the treasure and not of the vessel. So sometimes God allows us to go through stormy situations and God allows his storms to rise within us so that we don't go celebrating our faith, but we trust in the object of our faith. And the name of the Lord, again, won't chase all of our blues away, but the name of the Lord gives us a different perspective on that which we're going through. How do, they cut, how do we cut them off? How do, we, how do we cut off the enemy by using the name of the Lord? By being reminded greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. The name of the Lord. The name of the Lord tells me that I am his. I am sealed by his spirit and there is nothing that can get in that he won't let get in and that he hasn't filtered And there is nothing that can get away that he has secured by his great name. You notice in the book of Revelation, it speaks of the people of God, the faithful of God. You know how they are marked that his name is placed on them. It's funny that bad theology has caused some people to be worried about the mark of the beast. I'm not worried about the mark of the beast, whatever that may be. And no saint who is sealed by the Holy Spirit and who trusts in the name of the Lord or in the steadfast love of the Lord, we're not worried about a a mark of the beast. They can't sneak it on us. They can't put it in us in a chip because even whatever they do to the bodies, we are sealed by the name of the Lord and the name of the Lord in us will cut off anything that is against us. The name of the Lord, he says, I cut them off. In other words, I went to war against that which afflicted me in the name of the Lord. And brothers and sisters, we ought to go to war against that which rises up within us that causes us to doubt God's steadfast love with the name of the Lord so that we can bring into captivity anything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Brothers and sisters, we've also been given a corporate responsibility with the name of the Lord. It is in the name of the Lord that we preach Christ. It is in the name of the Lord that we baptize. It is in the name of the Lord that we form the covenant community. We cut off the enemy by exalting the name of the Lord. But here's a third thing that we see. Trusting in the Lord contextualizes our horizontal struggles. Trusting the Lord does not mean that the enemies won't afflict us. And trusting the Lord means we have been entrusted with his name by which we can cut off the assail, uh, that which assails us from the enemy. But trusting in the Lord helps us to contextualize 
all of our horizontal struggles. Here's what I mean by this. It means that if we trust the Lord, then we're not, when we, when we experience difficulties, then we ought to be confident of this, that this is not God's wrath on me. In other words, this is not God punishing me because of what I did in the sixth grade. Look specifically at verse 18. In verse 18, he says, The Lord has disciplined me severely. Do you know how easy it would be to go from the enemies that surround me to something that God is trying to get at me for? In other words, it would be easy to look at the fact that the enemy surrounding me, this is because God is, God is mad at me. God is, and, and, and so he says, no, that's not it. Therefore, I cut them off in the name of the Lord. But I am also aware that the hand of the Lord can issue severe discipline. The Hebrew word that's translated as discipline has both a literal meaning and a figurative meaning. And the figurative or the, the literal meaning means to instruct by offering heavy blows. That's, that's the physical. I mean, that's the literal meaning. To instruct by offering heavy blows. And then the, the, the figurative meaning is to instruct by offering heavy words. In other words, the end of discipline, period, the end of tutoring is instruction. It is not punitive. That's, 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 what, that's what we need to hold in mind. God is not punishing you. He's already punished you in Christ. And so God, and, and sometimes we make a one-to-one -one correlation. And this is where sometimes we see people coming back to church after many years because of, of wasteful living. Say, well, you know, I, I, I was going to church and then things were going well. I stopped going to church, things are not going well. God is just, he's, you know, he, he wants me back. And, you know, that, all of that, all of those things may be independently true. But God is not punishing in a punitive sense. So the struggles that we deal with, and, and, and this is, it really becomes problematic as Christians go through health crises. And we become, and other Christians become like the friends of Job. Job, what did you do? What did you do? Because surely a good God would not allow anyone to suffer. So there must be some sin. Must be some sin. And brothers and sisters, if we start there, we would never have a good day. Because our sin is always before us. So here's what, what, what the writer is basically saying, is now I understand the enemies that are within, that are, are, like, are like, a, like a flame that is consuming, that is rushing out to, to dry thorns. The enemies that surround me like buzzing bees. It's not God's hand of wrath against me. Whatever else explains all of the nonsense that I have to deal with, it's not because God is trying to, is, is, is punishing me, but he's training me for whatever reason that he's allowed this theater of suffering to experience, for me to experience, because he's training me.
Look at the way the writer of Hebrews expresses this in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 11. Dealing with this very subject, the writer says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and, and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, and it's as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Brothers and sisters, God trains us through our sorrows. And we don't say, thank you, I I know I'm being trained. No, here's what we know. We trust in the steadfast love of God. And because our trust is in the steadfast love of God, here's what we are convinced of. Whatever else I'm going through and why else, why I'm going through it, it is not because the Father does not love me. One of the misnomers that people have used to deal with, to help, try to help Christians deal with remaining sin. Those who would acknowledge that center that that even when we come to salvation that we may we may indeed we do indeed sin and so they they don't adopt what we would call perfectionism that once you are in Christ you never sin again but here's what we say and it's dangerous they'll say that okay yeah in 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 sin we are separated our our sin naturally separates us from God but now that you're a Christian they say sin doesn't separate you from God but it separates you from the fellowship of God brothers and sisters it doesn't sin for those who are called by his name does not separate us from intimacy with God. And so God trains us so that we know, in a sense, not just to not sin, but he trains us in a way that we know that we're not abandoned. Our sin grieves him in the way that 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 which is displeasing from a child displeases a parent, but they don't stop loving them. He says, here's what I'm sure of. That's how it contextualizes all of our horizontal experiences. If our trust is in the steadfast love of God, then God is not punishing me, but rather training me in all of the seasons and in all of the circumstances he guides me through. But Here's a fourth and final thing that we want to look at and It's expressed, especially in verse 17. 
that trusting in the Lord doesn't mean that all of our troubles will go away. It does give us access to the name of God. And trusting in the Lord is a reminder to the people of God that all of your difficult circumstances does not mean you are now on a road of hell because he's kicked you out of heaven. But here's the fourth and final thing. Trusting in the Lord connects us to a transcendent truth. It connects us to a transcendent truth. Transcendent simply means beyond. And trusting in the Lord connects us to a truth that is beyond our immediate experience. Notice what he says in verse 17 and verse 18. He says, I know that the Lord is disciplining me. And he's reached this conclusion because he knows he's not at the gates of hell. But in verse 17, he says this, I shall not die. I shall not die, but I shall live, and I will recount the deeds of the Lord. Now, this is a tremendous faith. In other words, is he saying that he will not die in this battle? Or is he saying in a broader sense that those who trust in the Lord, even though death is at the gate, we know that we will not ultimately die. So let's look at death. What is death? Well, death on the one hand is the separation of the spirit from the body. So there's a physical death in which we cease to be animated living beings. Death does not extinguish the spirit, it does not extinguish the soul, but it is a separation of the body from the soul. Now, the reason that's important is because God allows that separation to illustrate the greater truth of what death is. And death is ultimately the separation of the soul from the pleasurable disposition of the creator. Death is not the termination of physical existence because we all continue to live. We live forever and we live forever in the presence of God. Here's the difference. Some will experience his presence, his, his pleasing countenance, and others will face his countenance without mercy. They will face a holy God who is so holy that he cannot look upon evil, but he will. And it will be without mercy. Here's what trusting in the Lord reminds us of. It connects us to the fact that those who are in the Lord, he says, we shall not die. And he's saying on the one hand that I'm going to survive this battle, but on the other hand, he's saying that I will survive this, even the loss of life, I will survive that. Because I will not die. Why? Because what God has promised in his steadfast love is that we will be able to endure his... Remember what it says earlier, verses 1 through 4, that, the, that, that about the steadfast love of God, it endures forever. And here's what God will do for those whom he has connected to his steadfast love. He will keep us alive forever to endure or to engage his steadfast love, which endures forever. 
You see, the hellishness of hell is not the absence of God, but it is the presence of God. And here's where the power of God with his ungracious presence or his non-forgiving presence, his, his eternally holy presence, here is the terror falling in the hands of a living God. Even though we're finite creatures, God has put eternity in our breast so that we shall live. But the question is, those who live in him, in trusting in his, in, in, his, in, his, in his steadfast love, they will live in the presence of his glory and in the, pleasant, in the presence of his pleasure towards them. And those who are not, you say, well, they can't endure, but here's the problem. God continues life in his image bearers to either perpetually enjoy his presence or to perpetually endure his wrath. Those who trust in the steadfast love of God will survive this moment even if you die. That's what the Hebrew boys were getting at when they, when they were told to bow down and they didn't bow down and they were threatened with death. And then they, they finally spoke up and said, look, here's the, here's the, here's the problem. Here, here's the issue at hand. We are not going to bow. Be clear on that. They said, well, we're going to throw you in the flame. Okay, we, throw us in the flames. Because even if you throw us in the flame, we know that our God is able to keep us through the flames. So here's one of two things. Either you're going to be left with ashes that, that don't bow or you're going to be left with a problem that doesn't bow. But in either way, we will not bow and we will survive. Brothers and sisters, those who trust in the steadfast love of God will live forever. Isn't that what Jesus indicates, that conundrum when he says at the grave of Lazarus, of Lazarus. If anyone believes in me, he'll never die. But if he dies, you have everlasting life. I think that's what the writer is pointing at here. I may die in battle, but I'll live because he has promised me again. Notice the way he expresses it. He says, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. So on one side of the other, when it's all over, either after the battle and my enemy is physically defeated, we will talk about how good the Lord is, or if the Lord calls me home from this battlefield and because I fall by a sword, I will wake up in his presence and talk about how good the Lord is is the name of the Lord is our strength and God has placed all of the content of his grace in his name which is wrapped in his covenant promises and the steadfast love of God endures forever and we who trust in him trust in that promise it helps us to understand that our suffering is not because we are on our way to hell, but it's telling us that he's working even in that. And therefore, not, not struggles, not death, can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Amen.